going to start this morning with a couple Bible stories that have been my favorite since I was a little boy. I'm so excited. I love these stories because they're so cool. And as a little boy, they caught my imagination. And my, my grandma and my mom were my Sunday school teachers. And 2 Kings 6, when the king of Syria was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately the prophet Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel, don't go near that place, for the Syrians are planning to mobilize their troops there. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on the alert there. And the king of Syria was enraged over this, and he called his officers together and demanded, which of you is a traitor? Who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? It's not us, my lord the king, one of the officers replied, Elisha, the prophet in Israel. He tells the king of Israel even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. Go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. And the report came back, Elisha is at Dothan. So one night the king of Syria sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. Sends an army of thousands to get one man, because he knows God's with him. Then the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, and there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what do we do now? The young man cried to Elisha, don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. And then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Right on. Go God. If you don't know how that story goes, the horses and chariots of fire, the angels don't kill anybody. God strikes them all blind, and Elisha leads them inside the walls of the capital city where they're all captured. He prays, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And he saw that the hillside was filled with horses and chariots of fire. The next story is in Numbers chapter 22. Balaam is a uh, soothsayer, a witch doctor, a, a prophet, but he's not a prophet of Yahweh. But he just communes with the spirits in witchcraft and he can, he can meet with Yahweh in his trances that he would do. And but he's been paid by the king of Moab to curse Israel. And he's on his way to the top of the mountain to pronounce this curse. So Balaam got up in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. God was very angry when he went and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey and his two servants were there with him. And when the donkey saw that the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field and Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. And then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat her again. And then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam and he was angry and he beat her with his staff. And then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And Balaam answered the donkey, How irate do you have to be to not skip a beat, just start talking to a talking donkey? And Balaam has lost his mind. Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool out of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn, so he bowed low and fell face down. And the angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is reckless one before me. 
The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared her. It's a nice angel. (laughs) All right. Balaam's eyes were opened and he saw the angel. Now we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. We are on the afternoon of Jesus' resurrection. This is Easter Sunday afternoon. In the morning before the sun rose, Jesus rose from the dead. The women come to the tomb. There's the earthquake and the angels and John and Peter are there. And this is later that day in the late afternoon. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were going to a town named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking about everything that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and began walking with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And then he said, what are these things you are talking about while you walk? And the two disciples stopped, looking very sad, and one named Cleopas answered, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know what has just happened? And Jesus said, What are you talking about? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet who said and did many powerful things before God and all the people. Our leaders and the leading priests handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping he would free Israel. Besides this, it is now the third day since this happened, and today some women among us amazed us. Early this morning they went to the tomb and they did not find his body there. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who had said that Jesus was alive. So some of our group went to the tomb too, and they found it just as the women said, but they did not see Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, you are foolish and slow to believe everything the prophets said. They said that the Christ must suffer these things before he enters his glory. And then starting with what Moses and all the prophets had said about him, Jesus began to explain everything that had been written about himself in the scriptures. And they came near the town of Emmaus, and Jesus acted as if he was going further, but they begged him, stay with us because it's late, it's almost night. So he went in to stay with them, and when Jesus was at the table with them, he took some bread and gave thanks and divided it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. But when they saw who he was, he disappeared. And they said to each other, it felt like a fire burning us when Jesus talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us. You have physical eyes that see physical light, but you also have inner eyes that either see or don't see spiritual light. And here's three stories of people who had their eyes opened and they saw something in the spirit that they could not see in the natural. Jesus said over and over, you have eyes but you don't see. And he wasn't talking about your eyeballs because the people who he was talking to, their eyeballs could see. He was talking about the eyes of our heart. And those who don't have the light of the world are lost in darkness and they don't see. My question this morning is, where are those eyes? Because we know that we couldn't have open heart surgery and find eyeballs. Where are our eyes that Jesus is talking about? Where are the eyes that Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes? Well, 2 Corinthians 4.4 gives us a little bit of a clue in a verse about the devil. That Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Somehow, our spiritual eyes are connected with our mind because this says that the devil blinds the minds of unbelievers and they can't see the light. So, 
our spiritual eyes are somewhere in our mind. So when we say that I saw something in my mind's eye, that is biblically correct. Our mind has eyes that can see things, and you know that. You've experienced that. But it's something more than just our mind. There's another clue in Ephesians 1 in this passage. This is one of Paul's apostolic prayers that he was praying for the church in Ephesians and for all of us. Paul says, After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to pray to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Amen. I love it when Paul goes off praising Jesus. I don't know how he wrote fast enough. Uh, we're going to go back there to verse 18. And in the red there, this phrase, Paul is praying for his church and for us, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. So in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul said that the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now we have the eyes of our understanding. So we've got mind and we've got understanding. Everybody with me? There's eyes in there somehow. But the, to translate this word is a little more complicated than that. There's 20-some words in Greek in the Bible that mean understanding, knowledge, thought, information, learning, thinking. Um, and so in the Good News Bible, what we get, same verse, different translation. In the Good News Bible, we get the eyes of your mind may be opened to see his light. So we've got the eyes of our understanding and the eyes of our mind. And then in the NIV, the New International Version, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So we've gone now from understanding and mind. Why did the PhD committee that translated the NIV, why did they choose the word heart? I hope you know that if you know more than one language, you know this for sure, but no language is a word for word, one for one with any other language. All right, so the translators have to pick what is the best idea, what is the best English word that communicates the meaning and the idea, both the denotation and the connotation of this Greek word. But in English, heart's a long way from mind, we would say, we would think. But look what happens when we get to the Bible in basic English, the eyes of your heart full of light. And then we get to the Passion Translation, and this is what that translation committee did. I pray that the light of God will illuminate the eyes of your imagination, flooding you with light until you experience the full revelation of the hope of his calling, that is, the wealth of God's glorious inheritances that he finds in us, his holy ones. The light of God will illuminate the eyes of your imagination. So we've got eyes of our mind, eyes of our understanding, eyes of our heart, eyes of our imagination. How, how can that all be in one Greek word? Well, it is. Because the word there is this, it is dianoia. Dianoia, and it can mean mind, heart, understanding, or imagination. It never means thought, knowledge, information. It never means thinking, 
as we would, we would say um, logic. Because the Greeks had the word for that, it's logismo. It's where we get our English word logic. Logismo is, is logic. Dianoia, it's accurate to translate it mind or heart or understanding. But it is the only word in Greek that can be translated imagination. There are over 20 some words in Greek in the Bible that get translated understanding, mind, knowledge, learning, thinking, those sorts of translations. But dianoia can also mean, and no other word can, it can also mean imagination. InterVarsity Press is a new theological dictionary, third edition. This is, uh, this is the way pastors and preachers and don't know Greek and Hebrew. This is the way we learn these words, is, is these theological dictionaries. That group that wrote that book said, every time dianoia is used, it should be translated imagination. Because it's the only one that can be, so it should be. Everything There are other words for thought or understanding or knowledge. So Paul says, I pray that your dianoia would receive fotizo, which means light, but it's where we get the word English word photo. So it would be totally correct to, uh, to translate into English, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that's what we get in, in New King James, but the, the Greek, we could translate the Greek, I pray that the eyes of your heart would see images. And what's the root word of imagination? Image. And I pray that your imagination would see images. Ephesians 1.18. So where are your spiritual eyes? They're in your dianoia. I pray that your dianoia receives fotizo. Your imagination receives light or images. Your dianoia, as the Greeks would call it, it's roughly equivalent to the English idea of imagination. But it's something more than what we would generally call imagination. How many of you can easily get lost in a book? All right, as some of you who know, you know what I mean. Where you're reading an engrossing book and the world disappears and you, you're not aware when it disappears, but you are certainly aware when it comes back. It's like you just came back from a different planet. You know, you've been on your couch the whole time reading this book, but you were so engrossed in the story that it's like you just woke up from somewhere on somewhere else. Well, while you were reading that, you weren't just reading words, you were picturing the story. You were imagining it. Hello? So in English, our word imagination is not really connected very well with thought. But in the ancient world and in the Bible, imagination really means extreme concentration, focus, like when you get lost in a book. For those of you who don't read, which I know is most of you, you've maybe experienced it at a movie theater where you get lost in the movie and all of a sudden the credits start rolling and you're like, whoa, yeah, I am in a movie theater. Since that before. Maybe. Okay. More people are nodding on books than movies. That's good. I'm proud of you. That's great. How many of you are daydreamers? During a boring class or a boring sermon or at work, hopefully you're not operating heavy machinery or a power nailer, but you can get lost in imagination. 
That isn't pretend, it's extreme thought. This is why we can translate dianoia imagination, but it means mind, because your imagination is extreme concentration on something other than what you're doing. <laughs> How many of you have been driving and you realize, I have no idea where the last 20 miles went? Yeah, that can get really spooky. Hello? Because you go somewhere else. Y'all, you're with me. This is what imagination means. It doesn't mean pretend. It means I'm so focused, everything else disappears. But I'm picturing something. I'm feeling something. Some of you may experience it in a negative sense. You experience tormenting thoughts. When you're alone in bed at night or whatever, and, and that's, that's in your imagination, but it is very real. And it creates a reality for you as that voice speaks to you. As you think on that, it becomes your focus. And so, the Greeks have a word for processing information. It's logismo, and it's where we get the word logic, where we, okay, I'm thinking through this process, I'm learning in a class, science or history or, or whatever. You're thinking about what you're cooking, or you're, you're thinking about the machine you're operating. That's an, that's an exterior kind of thought as far as uh, ancient world thinking and even modern psychology would say. Um, our imagination is where we get beyond in deeper than that, which is why the NIV calls this our heart, because it is the innermost concentration, the thoughts of our heart, where we're not processing or going through a logic, we're just receiving. It's called revelation in the Bible. And I want you to know that you can, you can do this in prayer. You can do it in worship. You can do it in your Bible reading. You can become so focused that the world melts away and it's just you and God. And when you're in those times, it is not anywhere near anything pretend. It's more real than anything else. Where you can get so focused in on God that you lose the rest of the world. And I don't mean that you're not not transcendentally meditating and projecting somewhere else. I just mean you're, you're just lost. Like in a good book or a good movie, you just get lost in God. And you just receive rather than process. I've been able to do that for a long time. I've experienced that in my prayer times, but it was rather rare. It doesn't happen in your five-minute prayer time before you race off to work. But you can learn how to concentrate, how to turn your mind toward God so, so thoroughly, and eventually it becomes quickly and easily, that you can, you can get lost in God, in your, in your dianoia. And Jesus told us to. In Mark 12, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord with all your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Guess what word is there in the Greek in mind? It's dianoia. 
It isn't their word for your head. It isn't their word for your thoughts. Jesus didn't say love God with all your thoughts. He said love God with all your dianoia. Love him with all your concentration and imagination. I'm not saying it's wrong to think about how you love God, but Jesus wants us, wants us to enter into that place where our focus and concentration becomes communion. I have been in some transcendent worship moments, and I have been in some super boring worship moments. And what is the difference? Really, it's my concentration. Am I willing to push through the distractions of the temperature or my hunger or the time or the bad music or whatever it is? Am I concentrating? And what does concentration mean? I'm imagining Jesus. We're down here singing, you're worthy of it all. Day and night, let incense arise. And I'm picturing myself at, at the feet of the throne of God. And, and he's standing and I and I do this. Every time we sing that song, I do this. Let incense arise. I am wafting it up in his face. I'm imagining it on purpose. And using the Bible as my guide, I'm imagining what his throne looks like. And, and so what's the difference between someone comes here who is thoroughly bored and someone who is enraptured? Because it happens every Sunday. There's people who aren't feeling a thing and other people are crying their eyes out in love for Jesus. I can get thanked profusely and chewed out within three minutes for the same sermon what's the difference it's did you enter in to focused dianoia did you enter into extreme concentration and thought on jesus or are you thinking about other things in the outside world you can you can get into that place where it's just you and jesus you can do it on your own and you can do it in public it's a lot harder for me to do it here with y'all than it is at home or when I'm by myself, but it can be done. I, I've felt it before. I've been in times of worship and in, in a group and where all of a sudden I wasn't, I wasn't aware that I was going there, but when I came out of it, I was like, whoa, it was just, the, just like waking up from a book. That same rude awakening. For me, mostly what, what works is, uh, is me laying on my laying on my front on the floor, um, either in my office or at home in the night. I'll just lay on my face, put my nose in the carpet. Um, a lot of times that begins to hurt for a while, my back and shoulders and my neck and whatever else. So a lot of times I'll, I'll, in my office, I just get on my knees in front of my chair and I put a pillow under my chest and I just bury my, I bury my face in the back of the couch or the back of the chair. At home, I lay on my bed and I'll put my pillow under my chest and my face just falls in that hole right there and it's just right here. It's just me and God. But I'm not closing my eyes and just hearing my own voice talk into the darkness, into the mattress. I'm, I'm imagining God. He's right there. It's just me and him. So there's somebody here who's thinking, I knew it. I knew it was all fake. I knew it was just pretend, and the preacher just said so. He's just imagining it. You're just, you just come and you stir yourselves up in emotion, and you're singing to the ceiling, and you're all wild because you're pretending there's somebody there. I'm here to tell you that imagination is not pretend. Imagination creates reality. Our imagination creates reality. How could that possibly be, Mitch? In English, imagination has come to mean 
pretend, but in the ancient world, it, imagination was the most serious, deepest thought. The Eastern meditation style of Buddhism and Hinduism, I'm trying to lose my mind and my consciousness. In Western meditation, it is I'm thinking through something. I'm using my mind to process information and facts. Biblical meditation is I live in the Word of God until I become one with God. And I'm not putting my mind away like Eastern meditation, but I'm not using my mind to think that it can arrive at God. I'm concentrating until I receive. And Jesus taught us that that imagination, when you get there, is real. In fact, imagination is so real that it can define our eternity. We are accountable for the sins we imagine. Jesus said so in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Come on, boys. You all know it. We know this is right. Jesus said you even imagine sin. You're guilty. Our imagination is that real. Thought I was doing good just because I didn't act on it. You even imagine sin, you're guilty. Why? Because imagination creates reality. If you think on it, if you dwell on it, you're going to move that direction. Well, how long do I have to stare at a girl's butt to qualify as lust? It's not a factor of time. You either do or you don't. So this is the example Jesus uses, but the concept is any sin we imagine, any sin we open the door in our mind to, we're guilty of. So what about you get mad at your spouse and for a half a day you, you think on divorce? You imagine that in anger. You're guilty of the sin. What about anger? Mitch, I thought I was doing good because I didn't let the words out. Now if we even imagine the words, we're guilty. If I imagine revenge or murder, which I have, suicide, opening our mind for three seconds to that idea begins to create a reality. Self-pity. Hello. Some of you know, you, let, you open that door to self-pity for five seconds and it's got you for five days. Imagining sin counts as doing it. That's how real it is. That's how not pretend our imagination is. Your memories are now in your imagination, but they're not unreal. Hello? I'm talking about how real your imagination is. The things you remember from your life are very real. Even though they are now in your imagination, you're remembering pictures. Your expectations for the future are imaginary hopes. But when we expect or when what we hope doesn't happen, that is so powerful, it really messes us up. It's almost like a death because we can get so concentrated on this is what I'm going to do and then life doesn't work out that way. 
or this is what I think this other person should do. And we end up having to forgive the other person because they let our expectation down. Not because they did anything wrong. It's just, I thought that's what you should do. Hello, I imagined that you would do that or that you would not do that. And now I have to forgive you even though you didn't do anything wrong. Come on, I'm talking to you about how real our imagination is, that it's not just in our thoughts, it creates reality. Pro athletes are trained to use their imagination to improve their skill. NFL receivers can't run through all of the patterns on the, uh, in the playbook on the field because their bodies would give out. So they run some, and then the rest of them they go through as thought exercises. Their coaches take them through and they imagine the plays and they imagine what the defender's doing and, and it helps them catch the ball the time comes. Pro skiers and like bobsledders and losers, they run through the course over and over and over and over in their mind. In the military and in police, they take people through thought trainings, imagining how to work a hostage situation. They're imagining and then when they get in the situation... Their mind has been there before and they're not panicked. Who here is a musician that you're good enough, I'm not for sure at what I play, but you're good enough you've gotten lost in your music before? Like the world has just melted away as you played the piano or your guitar or whatever and you know what I'm talking about. Where, where you can be so concentrated on something that you... You're in it. Our imagination is creative. It defines, we act according to what we think. And your imagination of God creates feelings and beliefs and actions. If you believe God's mad at you all the time, that's going to affect how you pray and how you worship. If you believe God is a drunken Santa Claus who's happy all the time, that's also going to affect your actions and beliefs. And let's just line up our imagination with the Bible, huh? Let's not imagine a a Jesus that doesn't exist. So what does this look like in real life? How does this play out? All right, a couple stories that I know a whole bunch of you have heard before, but let me tell you them again. When Sarah and I are 23, we're just married. She's in grad school, and, and I'm waiting tables. I got a college degree, and I'm waiting tables. I could not get a teaching job, and I was 23, and I was certain the world was passing us by, and I was full of angst and stress and panic, and it was hilarious. Now, but at the time, it was very real, and the stress was, and I was on my way to a job interview, and I'm listening to a music that's directing me toward trusting God, and I just needed to have a moment with God, so I pulled over, and I just cried it out, and I, I yelled at God, and I prayed pretty hard, but I was, I was really trusting Him, I was believing Him, I don't know if it was five minutes, possibly more, on the shoulder of the road, and I look up through my tears in the windshield, and I saw Jesus on the, the interstate highway in front of me at a place where the road curved off out of view and he was pointing around the corner and he was jumping up and down with the biggest smile on his face, tears rolling down his cheeks and he's jumping up and down. He was so happy. There are no words for how excited Jesus was about what he could see around the bend in the road that I couldn't see. And he's, he's seeing my future. And in a flash, I just knew it. I knew what he, I, I understood what I was seeing, and instantly I was not crying, I was laughing, I was laughing, instant peace, instant uh, release of all the stress and the fear and the, and the what ifs, and I drove to that job interview and didn't get that job either, but I didn't see anything with these eyes, 
Some people claim that they see things, spirits and visions and things, and I believe them. But I didn't. I didn't see with these eyes. It was in my imagination. But it was real. I saw Jesus. I didn't conjure it up on purpose trying to comfort myself. I wasn't expecting it. And when it happened, it shocked me and it changed me. I said it changed me. I said what I saw in my imagination changed me. So I didn't dream it up. Because I didn't decide, oh, I'm going to imagine Jesus in front of me right now being really happy about my future and that's going to comfort me. I didn't decide that. It just happened. But it was real. And it's been something that's shaped me and helped me and defined me for 25 years. 20-some years ago, I suppose, around that, I was in prayer time in the dark in the night in the living room and my face is in the couch cushion and, and I was praying and God interrupted me. How rude. I was praying and... And in the middle of my prayer, I have no idea what I was praying about, but not this. I was just rattling off whatever my prayer list was and whatever I wanted to tell God. And and into my mind comes this sentence, you are not a disappointment. An instant, tears and My emotional reaction to you are not a disappointment shocked me because I didn't think that I was. I had no idea that I was conscious that I thought I was disappointing to God. So my reaction to it proves that I didn't dream that up. I didn't decide to imagine that God was pleased with me. He told me he was. And it was real. Because it instantly changed everything. It's real. I'm telling you, your imagination is more real than you know. God spoke to me. I can, I'm not saying everything you imagine is real. You don't believe 80% of what you imagine. But there are moments where, you know, I, I didn't hear that audibly. I didn't see that with these eyes. But I am changed. I just met God. And that was not my thought. That was not me imagining that on purpose. He just showed me something. He just spoke to me. That's what I mean by imagining the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Dr. Bruce Allen travels the world. He preaches a lot on the sanctified imagination, that that's one of our spiritual connections to the Holy Spirit. He said he's seen hundreds of healings, miraculous healings. People come to him for prayer, but he doesn't pray for them. No, I will not pray for you. Here's what we're going to do. He said, what would, what would it be like if Jesus healed you? What would your life be like? And he leads them through imagining their life with no disease and no pain. And he's hundreds of times, he says, right there, when they say, well, if Jesus healed me, I wouldn't have any pain. He's like, well, do you have any pain? Oh, no, it's gone. It's gone, I'm healed. When they imagine what it would be like for Jesus to heal them, it creates it. Because wishing and hoping and begging aren't faith. But picturing reality is faith. You might try that on your own with the Lord sometime. Imagine your life without your defining problem. What would that be? How happy would I be? How free would I be? How emotionally healthy would I be? How free of pain 
in my knee or my back or what, how would that, listen to me, not logismo thinking, dianoia thinking. Get to where that's all you're thinking about with the Lord and the rest of the world melts away and see what he does. So I have read and prayed Ephesians 1 over all of you every normal day for the last several months. I say every normal day because there's days when I'm traveling or I don't come to church and have my, my time with the Lord and because of whatever. But three to five or six days a week for the last months, I have, I have prayed this over you that the, the eyes of your understanding were being lightened. And this is how I do that. I read this verse out loud, but I personalize it. After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. Father, I pray this for me. I pray this for Sarah. I pray this for our kids. I pray this for their future spouses. I pray this for all in the New Song Community Church family, everyone that calls me pastor, everyone you've given me responsibility and care for. Lord, I pray that you would give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, and that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that the eyes of our heart would receive the light of the world, that we would see Jesus in his glory, that we would know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, and that we would know that we would see with the eyes of our heart what is the exceeding greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your mighty power when you raised Christ from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also which, that which is to come. This one passage out of four pages that I have that I read over you and pray for you every day. So if you've noticed anything in the last few months, you can let me know. I'd like to know. I'm praying that the eyes of your understanding are enlightened, that the eyes of your heart receive the light. For those of you who have never received that light, you're not born again, you don't know Jesus, I pray that he would open your blind eyes right now, that he would reveal himself to you, that he would shine in the darkness and be completely real to you in every way. And those of you who do know him, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be greater further enlightened, that you would know Jesus, that you would see him in his glory, that you would see his love for you and his power and his truth, that the word would be open to you as never before. Lord, turn on our dianoias with your light. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. To reach out and touch him and say that we love him. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord. We 
see Jesus. Jesus, we love you so very much. We cannot do this alone. We need to see you. We need to see you in your glory and in your holiness. We need to see you in the fear of the Lord. We need to see you in your comfort and your joy and your peace and your power and your beauty. Answer Elisha's prayer for us. Answer Paul's prayer for us. That our eyes would be open.